this morning, I want us to get to the bottom line of the book of Isaiah. And it would be four words. Two destinies and two paths. That's the bottom line. Two destinies and two paths. Would you open God's word to Isaiah chapter 65? We will read from verse 17 to Isaiah 66 verse 24. Two destinies and two paths. If you are new to our congregation, if you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, we encourage you to grab a Bible provided in the chairs in front of you. You may find this passage on page number 624. 624. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts this morning. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the, and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like the one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord. You 
who tremble at his word. Your brothers hate you and cast you out for my name's sake. They have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice in her in joy. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, and you shall be carried upon her hip, and bounce upon her knees, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. He shall show his indignation against his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire. And his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with the flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice, shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts. And the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and shall see my glory. And I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. On horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries. To my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men 
who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, would you speak to our hearts? speak to our hearts in a way that draws us to you. Reveal to us your ways. Lord, enable us by your Holy Spirit to respond so that we may be among those for whom you are creating a new heavens and a new earth. We pray this in the name of Christ for his glory and honor. Amen. Well, friends, the passage we just read is the second half of the answer that God gave to Isaiah's prayer. Isaiah and the remnant community um, at the end of the book uh, have come to a place where they they finally come to pray, a prayer of confession, a prayer of asking God to have mercy upon them, a prayer in which they are asking God to come down, to rend the heavens open and come down. And Isaiah knew Isaiah knew that when God would come down, the mountains would quake and tremble. What Isaiah didn't know, however, is that when God would come down, he would do a lot more than just make the mountains tremble. The answer that God gives Isaiah has news that is totally unexpected and and will catch some of us by surprise. Two destinies and two paths. Let's look at each of these. What God says about what he will do when he will come down. The two destinies that we have before us are a new creation and an unquenching fire. A new creation and an unquenching fire. Look at verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. As we look at the description of this new creation, God, God uses two images to describe the new creation. And the image is the image of a city and the image of a mountain. Two images that God uses to describe the new creation, the image of a city and the image of a mountain. The new creation is described, through, first of all, through the image of a city. And the city is the city of Jerusalem. Look at verse 18. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. And the answer is, Lord, what will you create? And, and he says, I'm creating, I'm creating Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Now, friends, we need to understand that when, when we see here the image of, of this promise that God will create Jerusalem, he is not talking about an earthly Jerusalem. If you'd like to know more about that, read Galatians 4, Hebrews 12, and Revelation 21. The promise is not for a, just an earthly, modern-day Jerusalem. Nowhere in this side of eternity will there ever be a city without the sound of weeping, without the cry of distress. But the new creation is presented here through the imagery of living life in a city with no more sorrows and no more pain city that God will create will bring joy to God's people. 
And the people that God will create for that city will be a people of gladness. God himself will rejoice in the people of that city. As we look at, at the life of the city and what that life of the city will be like, it's helpful to remember uh, the opposite, the curses that God gave to the people of Israel before they entered the promised land. And here's the, here's a sweet part. This book of Isaiah is written, was written before the exile took place to warn them, to warn them against the rebellion that they lived in. Now listen to the curses that God gave his people centuries before Isaiah wrote this book. Uh, before they even got into the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I encourage you uh, to continue to consider reading it on your own once you get home. I'm just going to read a few highlights from Deuteronomy chapter 28. You don't have to turn there. But listen to a selection of the curses that God gave his people before entering the promised land. Verse 28, verse 18, Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb, says God. Verse 20, The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. Verse 28, The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. And you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness. What an imagery that we have seen in Isaiah as well. And you shall not prosper in your ways. Verse 30, you shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You you shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. Why all this? Listen to verse 45 of Deuteronomy 28. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. It's the book of Isaiah. It's a testimony to all these curses. The book of Isaiah uses every one of these images to warn God's people again. The book of Isaiah was written before the exile took place. Did the people of Israel, did the people of Judah listen to the warning, to the curses that God gave, to the warnings to the prophet? No, they didn't. So now God sent him into exile. The book of Isaiah is a testimony that God does what he said he would do. Would bring upon his people the curses. But in God's mercy and grace, the book of Isaiah ends with a picture that God promised to rebuild the offspring. To rebuild the people of God. And to give them a new dwelling. And the new dwelling is nothing short of a new heaven and a new earth a new creation. And in that new creation, none of the curses of the old creation will be present. Quite the opposite. In that new creation, the opposite of all the curses will actually actually be the way of life. 
in verse 20 of our text in Isaiah 65, in verse 20, people's lives will not be cut short. Verses 21 and 22, people will enjoy their own dwelling. They will eat their own fruit from their own vineyards. In verse 23, people will no longer work in vain, but have success in all that they do. People will no longer have children born for destruction. Verse 24, God will respond to the prayers of His people even before they pray. The life in that new city that God is going to create is going to undo all the curses that God has uttered against His people. Not only will they be undone, but they will also be totally forgotten. You pick that up in verse 17. For the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Friends, when we experience the sorrows of this earth, when we feel the sorrows and the pain uh, of, of our existence, of our relationships, of our circumstances, when they might seem to be too heavy, too painful, too bitter, when the tears seem to be too hopeless, let this promise encourage you that all the former things will be forgotten. They will not be remembered anymore. God will not merely wipe our tears and sorrows, but God will also will take them out of our memory. For those of us who feel the lure of this world to build fame, to build riches, to build security, let this text challenge us None of the things that we build on this side of heaven will remain. It will be forgotten. So invest your life in that which is not transient. That's a picture of a new city. A city with sorrows past, forgotten, and with all the opposites of the curses of this creation. But the second picture of the new creation is not only the life of a city, it's the life of a mountain. Now, you might be surprised. What's so special about a mountain? It may be hard for us to imagine here who live in Texas that the picture of a mountain is such a, such a beautiful picture that would, would describe the new creation. But, but here's, here's at least two reasons why the mountain is brought as a picture that God uses to describe the new creation. First of all, when the Israelites would go to worship foreign gods, when the Israelites would go and worship other gods besides the true God, they would often do it by going up on the top of the mountains. And throughout this book of Isaiah, even as early as chapter 2, God promised, God introduced the people to a mountain, the mountain of the Lord, who shall be higher than all the other mountains. This mountain of the Lord that God now brings up again to describe the new creation it's going to be very different than any mountain on which the people of Israel may have been tempted to, to climb up to, wor- to worship other gods. The mountain of the Lord is also uh, useful as an imagery because oftentimes the shepherds of Israel would take the sheep up on the mountains for pasture. And taking sheep on, on the mountains for pasture was sometimes dangerous. Ravaged wolves would often attack the flock. One way to describe the new creation is to show that on this special mountain of the Lord, the wolf and the lamb 
will be eating together. This is a picture in which animosity and fear will be taken away. Imagine a world in which all creation will be characterized by an off-the-chart harmony. Even what we might consider today natural animosities as between wolves and sheep, even that will be taken away. Some of us long, long for that kind of harmony. Perhaps in family relationships. Perhaps between parents and estranged and rebellious children. Perhaps between adult children and their estranged parents. Or even conflicts that exist between husbands and wives. Imagine a world where there will be no more animosity. Perhaps even in churches. In neighborhoods. At the workplace. No more hurting. No more tears. No more destructive behaviors. Not even among animals. In verse 25, we see lions eating straws. Again, this is a picture we've seen earlier at the beginning of the book of Isaiah, and it comes back again now at the end. To say that lions will eat straws eh, like an ox means that God will change the nature of His creation. Carnivore animals, which normally have an appetite to eat other animals, their nature will be changed. They will have a new nature. They will no longer have an instinct to eat other animals. They'll eat straws. They'll all be vegetarian. No, the point is here, they will not hurt one another. That's the point. There's only one exception in this picture. Something will stay the same. The serpent will keep eating dust. means that the curse that God has given to the serpent in the Garden of Eden, that will not change. That will not be put off. That will not be canceled. There will be a new creation, but not for the serpent. Verse 25 ends with a beautiful picture. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. The new creation that God will make will have no more signs of hurting or destruction. Friends, think how much, think how much people can hurt you seen it. You've experienced it. Think about how much hurt you have felt in the past. Or just prepare to feel some of it in the future. Friends, remember, God says there will be none of it in the new creation. Now, as a church, we are called to live and be a foretaste of that new creation. As a church, we're called to to live in a way that will not hurt one another in a way that would prioritize each other before ourselves. In our own families, we're called to to love husbands to love their lives more than themselves. And vice versa. As As members of this congregation, we have a covenant that says, we will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Friends, I pray that that would be true of every one of us. Do you pray that way? Do you pray for the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace? Friends, when we pray for that, for, for our relationships as members of this congregation, for our relationships in our families, when we pray for that, we are praying that we might be a foretaste of the new creation. Now, I get it. On this side of eternity, 
that foretaste will often be mixed with the old stuff. I get it. We, we, we're not able to live that foretaste in a perfect way. There's hurt. There's brokenness in our families. There's hurt and brokenness even in relationships in church. Friends, we are looking to be, we are looking forward to a time when God will bring a new creation with all the hurt that we can imagine, that we might think it's natural, all of it will be put away and forgotten. But the opposite of, of this great destiny is the unquenching fire. The last verse of Isaiah, the ending of this, of this book, faces us with a hard reality that not everyone will make it into the new creation. We see this in verse 24 of chapter 66. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Isaiah ends this picture, this book, with a picture that should give us great chills. A picture in which dead bodies, those who have rebelled against the Lord, are presented like a, like a mass graveyard. And the bodies are not buried. And actually, the bodies somehow seem to be dead, and yet their fire does not go out. It says that their worm shall not die. This is an imagery. The worm often, the worm often gets into fruit. And when it gets into fruit, it spoils a whole fruit. To say that the worm shall not die is to say that that which has gotten in them to rotten them will never, put it be, will never be put out. The rebellious nature of those who have rebelled against the Lord will never be extinguished, and therefore their fire will not be unquenched. Think of that, dear friends. There will be a destruction that actually will not kill people. There will be a destruction that will never run out of being destructive. Earlier in verse 15 and 16 of, of, of Isaiah 66, the Lord says, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots are the whirlwind, to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh. Friends, Isaiah prayed to the Lord, Lord, would you come down? Would you rend the heavens open and come down to your people? And God says, yes, I'm coming. But when I'm coming, I'm coming with fire. When I'm coming, I'm coming with my wrath. When I'm coming, I'm bringing my sword. And listen what will be the outcome. And those slain by the Lord shall be few. No, that's not what it says. Those slain by the Lord shall be many. It should give us great chills, dear friends, that the rebellious will be many. When the Lord comes, when the Lord comes, those who have rebelled against Him whom the Lord will slay will be many. Did you know that Jesus preached from this last verse of Isaiah. Did you know that Jesus preached this last verse of Isaiah 
and he applied it to his own generation. Jesus said, preaching from Isaiah 66, 24, Jesus said at one point to his audience who was listening to him, here's how serious, here's how serious this unquenching fire is. Listen to Mark 9. Jesus said, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is how serious Jesus took this verse from Isaiah. It is better for us to do anything in our lives to cut off sin, to cut off the things that would lead us into sin, to root them out, even if it would mean physically, even though Jesus is not talking here about physically cutting off your hand, you can still sin. You can still look at pornography even if you cut your hand. And you can still be lustful even if you gouge out your eyes. It's not just about removing a physical limb. The point that Jesus makes is fight sin off, whatever the price. Because it's better to go what may look like lame or crippled or, or blind physically in this earth than to, to live well on this earth and go to the place where the worm does not die, where the fire does not go out. Oh, friends, hell is real. Hell is eternal. Hell is unending torment. Part of the purpose of this ending of Isaiah is to awaken us to the opposite destinies that are set before us. There's a new creation. Charts off, off the charts in terms of what it will be. But there's also an unquenchable fire. These two destinies are set before every one of us. But there's two paths for each of these destinies. There's two paths what are the past paths that lead to these two destinies? How, how do we know? How do we know which paths lead to, this, to these destinies? The rest of chapter 66 presents these, the path, the two paths that we have that lead to these destinies. The first path is the path of those who will make it into the new creation. The second path is the path of those who will not make it into the new creation. The path that changes, that leads to the new creation, is the path that changes our inner posture. It's a path that changes our inner posture towards ourselves, towards our sin, and towards God. The path that leads to the new creation is a path that changes our posture, our inner posture, towards ourselves, 
towards our sin and towards God. Let's look at how God describes this path. In, in chapter 66, um, we, God begins with a declaration and a question about the temple. What is the house that you will build for me, and what is the place for my rest? Now, this is a surprising question. In my own study this week, I was perplexed. Why would God move from, from talking about the new creation now to talking about rebuilding the temple? Well, because we have to remember the generation to which Isaiah initially wrote this book was the generation that was looking forward to get out of Babylon, to get back into the land, to rebuild their city, to rebuild the wall, and to rebuild the temple. So to a people who are longing for the physical restoration, to get back to their homes, to rebuild their lives, to rebuild even their worship and their worship space. God says, what is the house that you will build for me? God says, here's what I'm looking for. Here's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for a temple. I am looking for a change in the inner beings of those who worship me. Look at verse 2. All these things my hand has made, and so these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. It's as if God is saying, here's the one who's going to get my attention, or here's the one I'm looking for. It's not the temple, but the worshipers who are humble, contrite in spirit, and tremble at my word. You want to know who gets God's attention? It's not the proud. It's not the person who feels great about himself. It's not the person who manages to get people's attention. It's not the person who gets his way. It's not the person who is living the life of his dreams. No, the person who gets God's attention, it's a humble. The person who is aware of his own neediness before God. I imagine that some of the Israelites might have been so excited at the prospect of returning back to the land, to rebuilding their lives, to, to start building, start doing a building campaign, fundraising getting things off the ground, building a new campus for the Lord, building new stuff for themselves, new neighborhoods. How exciting would that be? And the Lord says, no, don't. Here's, here's what gets me excited. Here's the one I'm looking for. Well, friends, I wonder, I wonder if some of us might be more caught up in trying to restore our lives or even building up our lives more than cultivating humility before God. In the midst of brokenness, in the midst of our difficult circumstances, pride always makes our brokenness feel more painful. A few weeks ago, Pastor Taylor preached a sermon from 1 Peter 5 on standing firm, clothed with humility. If you haven't heard of that sermon, I encourage you to go online and listen to it. You will be blessed because God's people have been called to live humbly before God. But then in this passage, it goes on to speak about contrite in spirit and humility and contrition go hand in hand. The word for contriteness, we don't use it very often in English, so I need to, I need to explain it. The word for cont being contrite means being smitten down. It even can mean being disabled. 
when this word is applied to our spiritual lives, because that's what the point, the point of it is, it means to be aware of the damage brought by our own sin in our own lives. So to be contrite in spirit is to be aware of the damage brought by our own sin. To be aware that because of sin, we walk around as wounded and broken, and we need restoration. Now, the Israelites had an idea of what it means to be broken, to be smitten physically. They really were. But I, and, and they were looking forward to, to move out of that stage. But I wonder if they felt smitten in their inner beings just as they had been smitten physically. Are you aware of how sin manifests in your own life? Are you aware of the way sin damages you? How it changes the way you you respond to situations? To be contrite means to be aware of the brokenness caused by your own sinful tendencies. To be contrite is not simply to be aware that we are sinners. To be aware of, of sin in general, is not a big deal. We, we, we sort of are okay with that. But to actually be aware specifically of how that sin manifests in our own lives, and then to actually be broken over it, oh, friends, that's a different situation. Some people don't have a hard time acknowledging that they're sinners or that they sin, but they don't seem to be broken over their sinfulness. Contrition of spirit is to be aware of our own sinfulness and to be broken over it and not pretend like it's not there. Humility before God is manifested through the spirit of contrition inside of us. And then there's another characteristic that goes hand in hand with contrition of spirit. It's the one who trembles at God's word. Now this picture, this description puzzles us. I thought we were supposed to be happy in front of God. What about, what's this language of trembling before God's word? What does it mean? It, here, here's what it does not mean. Trembling at God's word is not the kind of fear that paralyzes us, that leaves us terrified. Instead, it's a kind of sensitivity and deep longing that you hope, you're concerned that things will go well. Concern that things that you may fall short of what the Lord is calling you to do, and, and you want you want to be living out what God says. There's a trembling before God's word that just keeps us on our edge, sensitive, desiring that we would live out what He says. God is looking for people who are sensitive to His word. That's what it means to, to tremble before His word, so much that it causes us to be attentive. Not physically tremble, but in our inner beings. So ask yourself, do you see these descriptions in you? Do you tremble at God's word? Do you have an inner disposition of the heart that considers God's word in high esteem and as a guide for your life as you treat God, God's word? Do you treat God? Do you treat God's word lightly, casually, not caring very much what it says, thinking how it actually might affect your life. Friends, God is looking for worshipers 
who are trembling before His Word. Have you considered that our attitude toward God's Word is an indicator that gets God's attention? I love how one commentator said, the mark of worship is whether or not people were trembling at God's Word. So ask yourself, is your worship of God leading you to more humility, to greater awareness of your own sin, and, and greater mourning for your sin? Does it lead you to have greater sensitivity to longing for God's Word? Friends, as a church, we want to be a gathering that cultivates humility, that cultivates brokenness in front of our sin, that cultivates an attitude of, and a posture of trembling and being sensitive in a good way, careful, attentive to God's Word. That's a path that leads to the eternal new creation. But the opposite path is a path that leads to rebellion. And the path that leads to rebellion will catch us by surprise. Here's why. Because in this chapter, the path that leads to rebellion is a path of religion that leaves the heart unchanged. The path of rebellion is a path of people who are religious, who leave the heart unchanged. Without a change in heart, in the hearts of the worshipers, a change that they have towards themselves, a change that they have towards their sin, a change that they have towards God's Word, without that change, nothing will be different, even if these people get back into their land and rebuild the temple. We see this in verse 3. Worshippers who go through the motions of religion are no better off than criminals. Verse 3 describes that worshippers who just go through the motions of religion are no better off than criminals. Look at verse 3. He who slaughters an ox... The worshiper who brings an ox to offer to the Lord is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb, like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering, bring your tithe, bring your money, bring an offering to the Lord, is like the one who's offering pig's blood. He who makes an, a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abomination. The choices that they make and the things they delight in, that's not changed. In other words, these worshipers were continuing to carry on their religious lives, and they did it without experiencing anything different in their hearts. They continued to choose their own ways, and they continued to delight in what did not please the Lord. So, so their lives showed that nothing had changed on the inside. Friends, that's why external outward behavior is no guarantee that we are okay on the inside. We can cover our external, uh, with our external behavior, we can cover a rebellious heart that chooses our own ways, that continues to delight in the things that displease the Lord. Part of growing as a congregation, part of growing as a congregation is encouraging one another not merely to have casual or superficial questions of life, but to ask one another questions that, that get to the heart of issues, that, that deal with, with what's happening in the heart. 
the reason why we are starting a, a class next Sunday morning on biblical counseling is not that we might make you professional counselors. That's not our aim. The reason why we're offering that class is because we want to equip you as you are getting involved in each other's lives to actually have tools in your tool belt to ask questions that get to the root of the heart. Biblical counseling is about helping people recognize that whatever brokenness, whatever things are are not working well, stem from a brokenness in the heart. And unless we get to the heart of the matter, unless we get to the heart, we will not be able to see any lasting change. That's what biblical counseling is. That's why we want to equip you with that and encourage you to consider taking it. One of the ways we can care well for one another in this congregation is to ask if we are aware of our own sinful tendencies and where the battle line is in each and every one of our hearts. And friends, when we, when we engage in those questions, we should not be satisfied only to see a change of behavior. Some, some of us might be good at, at just managing our external behavior, but caring well for one another is to go deeper and find out where is the battle against sin happening in the heart. Are we losing the battle there? Because if we're losing the battle in the heart, sooner or later we will also lose it in the behavior. The path of rebellion makes religious people despise those who seek the Lord. Here's another surprise about the path of rebellion. Not only is it is the path of rebellion a religious path that keeps things superficial and external only, the second part about the path of rebellion is that Some people in the church will actually have a hard time with the people who actually are seeking the Lord. Look at verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord. You who tremble at his word, your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake, have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. Do you see who's giving trouble? To these folks who are, who are desiring to tremble at God's word? Do you see who's giving the trouble? It's not the people outside. It's their own brothers. It's the very people who actually say, let the Lord be glorified. It's the people who use a religious language. It's the people who have a good theology. And yet when they see others around them who are actually truly casting themselves on the Lord, trembling at God's word, they're actually the push, giving pushback and giving a hard time. Friends, when God's people grow in attaching themselves to the Lord and to his word, their adversaries will come not from the world, but even from within. People from people who just want to keep religion superficial and are bothered by the call to grow closer to the Lord. I love how someone said, what finally divides the true from the false in the church is faithfulness or unfaithfulness to the word of God. Clinging to the promises of God will always seem fanatical and foolish to those who have abandoned them. So friend, ask yourself, when you see someone increase in their desire for God, in their desire to trust in the Lord, in their desire to be faithful to the Lord, do you despise them? Have you heard people say, make comments like, now, don't try to be too spiritual. 
Perhaps you may not say such things verbally. But what about quietly in your own heart, despising someone who seems to be closer to the Lord and seeming to, to desire more of the Lord than you do? Well, friends, there can be divisions in church because some people want to get closer to God and others in the church are not happy about it. The Apostle Paul spoke about that in 1 Corinthians 11. God warns those who tremble at his word that pushback will happen from within their midst. God says in verse 5, It is they who shall be put to shame. After describing the path of rebellion, God comes back to, to the path of life, to the path that leads to, to, to the new creation. And there's a few characteristics about the path of the new creation. It's, again, God described the path of new creation, went to the path of rebellion, and now we come back to the path of new creation. And we see that from verse uh, 7 on until the very end of the chapter. The path of the new creation is a path of putting our trust in God even when it doesn't make sense. This is the path of the new creation, trusting in God even when it doesn't make sense. In verse 7 and 9, God gives a picture of a woman who gives birth before she's even in labor. Actually, she's giving birth without giving labor. And we know that doesn't just happen. That doesn't happen. Verse 8, even God says, who has heard such a thing? And that's the point. The picture of giving birth to a child without going through the pains of labor is a picture that God will do what we don't expect and in ways that we can't explain and in ways that we don't contribute to it. God will do it. He will act in a way that doesn't make sense to us. Friends, that is a path of salvation. That is the promise of God rebuilding and recreating a new heavens and a new earth. God will do it. And if you want to ask how, or how, how can you explain it naturally? And the point is, look at this picture of, of a woman who gives birth without experiencing any of the pains, without experiencing any of the labor. It just doesn't make sense to our physical experiences. But it makes sense to the God who is able to speak the world into being by merely saying, let there be. God can bring it about even when we don't have the experiences or the explanations for it. The path of new creation, the path that leads to the new creation is a path of finding comfort in what God will restore in the future. In this particular, in verses 10 through 14, again we see the picture of Jerusalem. The picture of Jerusalem as a mother who is comforting her infants. As a mother who is raising up her children. God will make that new creation, that new Jerusalem, to be indeed a place of comfort. Well, friends, God is calling God's, His people to have comfort and joy, not in the here and in the, in the now, but in the future of what God will make. And it will be a future of comfort and joy. The path that leads to the new creation is a path of missions. God says in verses 19 through 20, that he will take from among the survivors, proclaimers who will go and declare God's glory among the nations. Verse 19, and I will set a sign among them. What is that sign? Most commentators say that sign is a sign of the cross. We don't know exactly because Isaiah doesn't explain it to us, but he has told us in chapter 52 and 53 that he will send his servant by whom and through whom, through whose death, God will bring people to himself. 
God says, I will take from them, I will take survivors and send them to the nations, to Tarshish, to Pool, to Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal, Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame and seen my glory. They shall declare my glory among the nations. We see here a, a path of missions. The great commission passage of Isaiah is right here. God will come, take from the people whom he's saving, and calling them to go out to the nations and take the gospel to the people who have not heard it. That's why, dear friends, we as a congregation want to grow even more than we are currently at in giving and supporting international missions. The path of worship is the last characteristic we see in verse 22 and 23. God assures their offspring that their name will remain forever. Verses 22 and 23, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before you, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. For the new moon, from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me. The path to the new creation is a path of worship. Yet with all these words of assurance, with all these characteristics, Isaiah's last words, Isaiah's last words are the words of warning. Verse 24 that we have already considered. The people who will, who will experience a new creation are reminded of, the, of their sad reality that there is a mass graveyard whose fire shall not go out. What a sober way to end this book. On one side, it's a glorious ending. You hear the new creation that God is preparing for all His people. On the other side, it's, it's very sober to hear that not everyone will make it. The troubling ending of Isaiah is that many will not make it. And what distinguishes between these two destinies? What distinguishes between these is the path that people choose to take before they get there. The path of humble submission to God's word. Not to our word. Not to our religion. Not to our own impressions of what is right and what is wrong. But to God's word. And it's not just an external religion. It's not just going through the motions. It's a religion that actually changes the heart. That, that actually changes our inner disposition. So that we have a different view about ourselves about our sin, and about God. Friends, this path can only be experienced by those who have gone to the servant of the Lord whom God has provided. The servant of the Lord is Jesus Christ. The only way we can have our, cha- our inner being changed and transformed is if we ask God to save us. And God does save all those who rely on Jesus Christ and on Christ alone for their salvation. There is no other name given to men under heaven by which they must be saved than the name of Jesus. And when that salvation takes root in our hearts, it changes the nature of our hearts. Oh, friends, if you have not responded to Christ, if you have not responded to the gospel, if you have not surrendered your life and turned away from your sin and asked God to save you through what He did in Jesus Christ, through His death and through His resurrection, 
I want to encourage you today, come to him. Respond to him. Take the path that changes our inner being. The path that only Jesus alone is able to make us through. But for those of us who have experienced God's salvation, for those of us who have experienced the, 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 the conversion and the response to the gospel, oh friends, the, the two paths continue to be before us. It's easy for us to, to go back into the mode of, of just going through the motions of religion. And this passage reminds us what God is looking to. What God is looking after, he's not looking for religious activism. He's not looking for religious busyness. He's looking for people who would be humble before God. He's looking for people who would be contrite in spirit, who cultivate an attitude of mourning for their sin. And he's looking for people who would tremble at God's word. The path of rebellion is not just the path of being irreligious. The path of rebellion can take the path of religion, of deep religious activity, as long as it doesn't leave the heart um, unchanged. As long as it leaves the heart unchanged. As long as it doesn't lead us to these characteristics of humility and trembling before God. We must trust in God's word alone, in the salvation that he alone must bring us through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, the glory of God alone.